I've titled my message this morning, The Scarlet Line. And we're going to begin our study by reading Joshua chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Joshua chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. And we're going to read through verse 15. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord... Since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Let's pray. Father, bless us together this morning, we pray. Please send the Spirit of God. Guide our hearts and minds, our lips and our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's obviously about Jericho and about the two spies, and about this woman named Rahab. And what we want to do now is go back and get the context for the story. And we'll do that by reading the text that come just before it. So follow me, if you will, while I read the first seven verses of Joshua chapter 2. The first seven verses of Joshua chapter 2. Now Joshua, the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house. For they have come to search out all of our country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where they went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may be able to overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid out in order on the roof. The men pursued them by the road to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Jericho, two spies, and a woman named Rahab. <clears throat> Jericho was only about 15 miles east of the place where Israel is now camped. Israel is ready to go in <clears throat> and possess the land according to the promise of God. And that city in the promised land, the land of Canaan, which will present the first challenge to them and the most difficult test for them is that city which is closest at hand across the border, the city of Jericho. And one author says that Jericho was the key city to the conquest of the whole country. 
Of all the cities in Canaan, it was probably the largest, probably the most strongly fortified. And Israel had said 40 years earlier that they couldn't possess the land because the cities were great, they had high walls, and their inhabitants were giants and very warlike. And Jericho qualified in every detail. You would either have to be possessed to try to conquer Jericho or you would have to be possessed to attempt the conquest of this city. But bless your heart, God knew very well what he was doing. He was going to make Jericho the first fruits of the promised land. You see, if Jericho, the largest city in Canaan and the best fortified city in Canaan, if it can be taken, and if it can be taken with relative ease and with no loss of life, then that ought to do two things. First, it ought to say to Israel that if the strongest city in the land can be taken, then the whole country can be conquered. And secondly, it ought to say to the Canaanites, especially to those living in Jericho, that judgment is on the way. Prepare now to meet Israel's God. Let me point out something about the organization of the book of Joshua. I want you to notice <clears throat> that chapter 2 tells the story of sending the two spies out to Jericho and their encounter with Rahab. But if you look closely, you'll discover that you don't have the actual fall of Jericho until chapter 6. So the two spies go out in, in chapter 2, and then the fall takes place <clears throat> actually in chapter 6. My question is, why is there this gap of three chapters between the spies going in and the actual fall of Jericho? Why don't you have the fall of Jericho immediately following the story of the spies? The answer comes back that before Israel can begin the conquest of the land, before they can actually go in and possess the land, some things have to happen. They have to be ready to receive the land. And to be ready to receive the land, certain things must take place. Number one, they have to cross the Jordan. And that's what chapter three is about. But at this point, you see, that's not a certainty. They've been confronted with that situation before. Forty years earlier, they came up to the Jordan. They didn't cross over the Jordan. Not at all. They've been confronted with that test. And they didn't pass the test then. Will they make it this time? Or will they actually go over the Jordan River? Or will their faith waver like it did 40 years ago? Or will they take the plunge and cross over Jordan and enter the promised land? That has to happen before the fall of Jericho. The second thing that has to happen is they have to build a memorial to their deliverance. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. They will need something to remind them that it is the power of God that took them across. Victories are not won by sheer strength of the will, nor by making all of the right choices, as some would have you believe. They are not acquired by might nor by power. Victories are acquired by God's Spirit, and they will need a memorial to remind them of how victories are gained through the strength of God. 
Memorials of spiritual victories are important in the spiritual life. And you know what, folks? We don't have too many of those memorials in Adventism. I've often thought, what it would be if we had a new birth birthday every year? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be nice? But that's what that chapter is about. Number three, they have to restore the rite of circumcision and observe the Passover once again. And that's what chapter five is about. They forfeited that privilege to practice these rites when they rebelled at Kadesh 40 years earlier and when they disobeyed God's command to go over and possess the land, they could no longer practice those, those ceremonies. These rites are matters of faith. And at Kadesh, they demonstrated a complete lack of faith, total lack of faith. God withdrew those two practices, those symbolic rites, because of their evidence of a lack of faith. It's been 40 years since these sacred ceremonies have been observed, and it's time to start them again. That's what chapter 5 is about. You see, my friends, before they can inherit the promised land, they have to be ready to receive it. There's a lesson there for us, I think. And apparently being ready involves what happens in chapters 3, 4, and 5. They must first get over the Jordan. Then they must build a memorial to their victory. And then they have to resume the practice of these sacred religious ceremonies. And the whole process begins with the sending in of the two spies and with their encounter with Rahab. And that's what we're going to focus our study on this morning. And before, <clears throat> before we go any farther, perhaps I probably ought to tell a story. We're going to tell the story uh, so that you can follow along in the Bible. There are some interesting details about it that become very significant indeed. So if you have your Bible, it would be well for you to open to Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, this story begins with verse 1, where Joshua secretly commissions the two spies to go into Jericho and to, quote-unquote, view out the land. So they go in... <coughs> And they end up lodging overnight in the house of, quote-unquote, Rahab the harlot. In verse 2, the king of Jericho somehow gets word that two Israelites are in the city spying it out and that they are, in fact, at Rahab's house. And so in verse 3, he demands of Rahab that she turn them over to the authorities. Rahab's response in verse 5 is that, yes, they were here, but that they left at about the time of the shutting of the city gates, and that if the authorities hurried, perhaps they could catch the spies just outside the city. And in the meantime, while the guards are off on their wild goose chase, she takes the spies up on her roof, and she hides them by covering them with stalks of flax that she has drying up there. That's verse 6. And then in verse 12, she makes a request of them. And she makes the request because she knows, according to verse 9, quote, unquote, the Lord has given you the land that your terror is fallen upon us. She knows that. So she makes this request. And the request is 
that when Israel comes and conquers the land, comes and conquers the city, that they will remember her and her immediate family, her father, her mother, her brothers, and her sisters. And so she asked them, will you give a true token of this agreement? Will you give a true token of the, of the agreement? And the spies begin their reply in verse 17. They say that they will preserve her in the Holocaust if she will meet three conditions. Number one, she must place a scarlet line in the window from which they escape out of her house. Number two, that all of her family who want to be preserved must be in her house at the time when it all comes down. Anyone who remains outside will have demonstrated that they are really not interested in being saved at this time. And number three, they tell her that if she breaks the oath and tells anyone the story, then they will be freed of the agreement and cannot guarantee the protection of her and her family. So she immediately agrees to the terms of the agreement and she helps them escape through the window. She gives them instructions for finding their way back to the city of, of, of back to the Israelite camp and the spies return to Joshua and give the report found in verse 24. The report is truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. Very, very interesting story. And let me suggest that it is filled with significant details. It's loaded with spiritual lessons for us to learn. And I've listed some of those lessons, and I'd like to share them with you this morning. And as we go down the list, I'll make some applications that I think will be valuable for us. Lesson number one. Lesson number one. Why send the spies in at all? I mean, couldn't the question that, <clears throat> that was asked 40 years earlier be asked again here at this point? Don't you trust God enough to believe that the land is a good land? He said that it was. He said that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. Is it really necessary to, sp to send the spies out again? 40 years ago, the report was, was positive. It's a good land, a fruitful land. Why not just trust that? Do you expect that in the last 40 years the land has gone to ruin and there's no reason now to go over? Didn't God tell you that he would give you a land that was flowing with milk and honey? Why not just believe that? Why not just accept that? Why go to the trouble of sending out the spies again? It wasn't a good experience 40 years ago. What's going to happen now? And the answer comes back. That things are different this time. It's a whole new set of circumstances now. Forty years ago at Kadesh, when they sent the spies out, it was to, to determine if, to determine if they could take the land. 
and they failed to go in because they refused to believe that they could, and their unwillingness to go in demonstrated a, a complete and total lack of faith. But now it's all different. This time when they go in and spy out the land, it is not to determine if the land can be taken, but how best can the land be taken. That they would be victorious is all settled in Joshua's mind. To him, it's a foregone conclusion. All he needs is some information that will help him formulate a plan that with God's help will give him the city, give him victory. And the information the spies bring back will help them with the development of that plan. One author says that they were simply having a preview of victory by going in this time. A preview of victory. That, by the way, is probably the reason that Joshua sent the spies out secretly, the Bible says. At Kadesh, <clears throat> 40 years earlier, the 12 had been commissioned by the people, the 12 spies. And they reported back to the people. And the people had decided on the basis of the report to go back out into the wilderness. But Joshua will not let that happen again. He is certain of victory. God has promised it. He, therefore, will commission the spies. And when they come back, they will report not to the people. They will report directly to Joshua. There will be no chance for the mob to influence the decision this time. The opportunity to possess the promised land must not be passed by again. It cannot be passed by again. Then I think that the sending out of the spies served another purpose as well. You see, if the spies, if they could penetrate the land, the largest, best fortified city in the land, the most closely guarded enemy city, if they could penetrate that city and come back alive, that ought to act as a source of encouragement to the rest of Israel. If they could have a skirmish with the giants of the land of whom they were so terribly, terribly afraid, if they could do that and remain unharmed, then they should be able to invade the whole land without any fear. If God can deliver the spies from the hand of the enemy, then he can be trusted to deliver the enemy into the hands of the spies. Lesson number two. I have a question for you. <clears throat> An interesting one, perhaps a little philosophical. I don't know if you thought about it before or not, but here's my question. Why, why when they entered the city, did the, did the spies seek out the house of a harlot? I mean, why did they go to a brothel? Well, there's been a whole lot of discussion about that question. And the discussion has taken several different approaches. Uh, to the one extreme are those who say that they were simply following, quote unquote, their natural instincts. I mean, they were in a strange city and they didn't know anyone there and no one there knew them. And who after all would be the wiser? Nobody would be the wiser. I mean, why not? 
Everyone to one degree or another is controlled by their natural desires, a natural thing for the spies to do. To the other extreme are those commentators who say this explanation is totally unrational, completely unthinkable, and should never even be considered. What they say is that Rahab was nothing more than an innkeeper, the equivalent of today's hotel and motel manager. But you're hard pressed to make that argument stick because in other places in scripture, as well as here in this story, she is specifically called a harlot. And the Hebrew word won't allow for any other interpretation. That in fact was what she was then why the harlot's house? Let me suggest two reasons. The first reason is a practical one. I think that they were there because they were just being good spies. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that they probably had some inkling that they had been seen. The citizens of Jericho had, after all, been on the extreme lookout for Israeli spies. And at some point in their espionage activities, they had apparently been sighted. <clears throat> the king of the city knew they were there. And that's why he was looking for them. He knew, and if he knew, probably the rest of the citizens of Jericho also knew. And so what do you do? Um, in fact, there may have been even a reward offered for information leading to the rest of these spies. Which leads again to the obvious question. Where in this large and wicked city is the most inconspicuous place to hide? The place where you're apt to draw the least amount of, tension, of attention and I answer, wouldn't it be a place that sees a lot of traffic, a lot of people going in and out? Especially an establishment which draws foreign people, and plenty of them, foreign travelers. A place where people who look and dress differently from the ordinary citizens come and go at will. A place where they have a look of suspicion when they enter. A look of guilt about them because they're patronizing an establishment like this. You see, I think they went there simply because it was the place in town that afforded them the greatest opportunity to be the most inconspicuous. But there's another reason as well, a spiritual reason. I think that God led them there. I believe that, I do. And why do I say that? I say that because I think that God had been working on Rahab's heart for some time. I can imagine the gospel seed being sown in Rahab's heart a long time ago. I can, for example, hear one of her customers flippantly saying, hey, did you hear what Israel's God has done for Israel? I heard that, they, that, that their God devastated Egypt with plagues. And that he divided the Red Sea so that they could escape the Egyptians. And that he brought water from a rock out in the desert. And that he fed them with manna for 40 years. Can you believe that? And I think that Rahab then was probably in the valley of decision 
deciding in her heart what she was going to do with this knowledge of God that had been given to her. Most of us would have, because of her profession, would have considered that she was a thorny ground hearer. But the Holy Spirit knew better. I think it was divine providence that sent the spies there. And God wanted them to nurture that gospel seed that had been growing in her heart. I think that God wanted her to be saved. I don't think at all that she was a common prostitute. Not at all. Lesson number three. This has to do with the first condition of the agreement the spies made with Rahab. She asked them, please deal kindly with me when the Holocaust comes. Let me be saved. Let my family be saved with me. And verse 12, give me a true token as a sign. Literally in the Hebrew, that is a sign of truth, a token of truth. Give me a token of truth as a sign. And they answer her in verse 18, yes, just make sure that this line of scarlet thread is hanging out of the window from which we escape. Hence the subject, or the title of my sermon, The Scarlet Line. Just make sure this line of scarlet thread is hanging out the window from which we escape. Do you see it? The token of truth is the scarlet line. And did you know that the Hebrew word for line literally means hope? In fact, in 31 other places in the Old Testament, that word is translated, not line, but translated hope. Do you get it now? The true token, the sign of truth, is that your hope is in the scarlet line. If your house is flying the scarlet banner, you have hope. And the scarlet thread you see is akin to the blood sprinkled on the doorpost at the time of the Passover. And those who had the blood sprinkled on the doorpost were delivered in that Holocaust. And I think it's not by chance or by coincidence that the sign of hope is crimson in color, for that's the color of blood. Exactly the same color as the blood of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the lesson becomes obvious, doesn't it? There is hope for those who live under the sign of scarlet. There is protection for those who are covered by crimson. Where the blood is applied, people are saved. Where the blood is sprinkled, deliverance is guaranteed. The prophet says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Would you be free from your burden of sin? Have hope. There's power in the blood. And there are other lessons in conjunction with this that we would do well to learn. Notice, for example, that she wanted her closest relatives to be, to be preserved as well. Her most earnest desire was that they also come and join her under the banner of hope and protection. 
Now, I know that the greatest wish of every parent and every grandparent is to see their children and their grandchildren in the kingdom of God. Heaven will not be the same if they are absent. And then notice also in verse 22, verse 21, she puts the line up immediately. She hangs it out of the window right away. No hesitation, no delay, no second guessing. If she is to exhibit the crimson cord in order to be saved, she will fly that cord immediately. And here's where I think that we need to make an application to us. Because I think that sometimes we Adventists, because of the way in which we interpret prophecy regarding the second coming, predispose ourselves to putting off spiritual decisions. We look for certain historical events. And if we don't see them immediately on the horizon, we say to ourselves, well, this hasn't happened yet. And Jesus can't come until it does happen. And that isn't going to happen until this event takes place. And that event isn't going to happen until this other thing occurs. And we read the newspaper looking for the announcement of a national Sunday law. And we keep pushing back the second coming, all the while saying to ourselves, I have some time yet. I can put off making that decision. I can postpone that decision for a while yet, at least until I see in the newspapers about the, the Sunday laws. I have some time. I can put off making my decision until I see these events taking place. And my response is, have you heard the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten young maidens? What does that parable have to say about this line of reasoning? And if it tells us anything, it tells us that we dare not take the chance of putting off any decision regarding our salvation. We do not have that time. It says, that parable says, that the king will come when we are the soundest asleep. The king will come when we least expect him because we've been putting off his coming. But this wise lady hangs the line out immediately. She will take no chances when it comes to her salvation and the salvation of her family. Out goes the line right away. Lesson number four has to do with the second condition of the agreement. And that was that they were safe only so long as they remained inside her house. She was to make sure that she was there and that her relatives also were inside with her. And she was to bring her family in. Their protection during the attack could not be guaranteed as long as they stayed outside. And what's the application of that? The primary application, of course, is to Jesus. Only those who are, as the apostle says, only those who are in Christ, only those who are hid in Jesus, they're the only ones who are safe. To be outside of Christ is to be unprotected. It is to be unsafe. This is the record, the Bible says, that God has given to us eternal life. That life is in his son. 
He that has the Son has life. It says again, neither is there salvation in any other. If you aren't in Christ when the destruction comes, you will end up in the destruction. That's the first application. There's a secondary application I would like to make, and probably it comes because of my theological training, of the fact that I've been a church, church person for so long. And that application is that it, it, the application, the parable, can be applied also to the church. For the church is an extension of Christ. The church is his body on earth. And in that light then, I would suggest that the church today is God's sanctuary of refuge in the world. I believe that. The church today is God's sanctuary of refuge in the world. The church is his ark of safety. Those who wish to escape the Holocaust when it comes, I say to them, it's best to be in the church. If we would be saved, we need to come to the church. We need to be sheltered in the church. To remain outside the church or to leave the church, to depart the church, is to place ourselves in immediate danger. It is to be uncovered and unprotected. To be outside the church is to be inside the world, and to be inside the world is to, is to be ripe for the destruction that will overtake the world at the second coming of Jesus. And what would happen to us then? If when Jesus claimed to claim the church as his bride, what would happen to us if we were not in his church, if we were not a part of the bridal party? We would be then, I think, in terrible danger if we were not in the church. And now I'd like to close by pointing you to one final lesson from the story. One final from, lesson from the story. <clears throat> and I've saved it for the last because I think it's the most important. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And when I say Hebrews chapter 11, you immediately recognize Hebrews 11 as the great faith chapter. By faith, Abel and Enoch and Noah by faith, Abraham and Sarah and Jacob. By faith, Joseph and Moses. And now, verse 31, Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And here's the point that we want to make. Wherever she's spoken of in the Bible, She's referred to as a harlot. We've even alluded to her in our study as a common prostitute. But the point is, you see, that she wasn't common at all. She was, in fact, very uncommon indeed. And she isn't called a harlot to humiliate, humiliate her or to, to demean her memory. She's called a harlot to vividly contrast what she was before this encounter with what she became after the encounter. Can I show you? The next time after this story, 
that you read about Rahab, you read about her in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, verse 5. And in that genealogy, she isn't called a harlot there. She was an illegitimate prostitute, but she became the legitimate wife of Salmon. Her son was named Boaz, and he later married Ruth. And thus Rahab was to become the great-great-grandmother of David, Israel's finest king. From a prostitute to a progenitor of Christ, she was to stand in the line of Christ because she hung the scarlet line from her window. What a glorious privilege from a prostitute to a progenitor. And I hope you get the point. She had an encounter with God. She said yes to Jesus. She was a harlot, but she was saved by faith. She wrapped herself in the crimson banner and escaped the Holocaust when it came. When Jericho was destroyed, this woman perished not with those who believed not. Do you want the application for us now? It's this. Whatever our life, Jesus can change it. Whatever our sin, Jesus can forgive it. However degraded, Jesus can bring us to our full potential. The Bible calls it the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. By faith, Rahab the harlot heard the same words that Jesus spoke to the woman caught in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Rahab responded to that appeal and was preserved from the destruction. And he invites us today to come to him and escape the coming destruction, Rahab answered the call, and so must we, Father dear. Oh, such a touching story. We look at the life of a woman who had no hope, no promise of anything for the future, except the life that she was stuck in, but the scarlet line, the line of truth, the blood-stained banner of Jesus made all the difference. And it can make the difference with us. In Jesus' name, amen.